Well, good morning, everyone. I am Steve Douglas. It is good to be with you this morning. We've been working as a church through the Gospel of John, and uh, we've been seeing how people react to Jesus um, and his claims about himself. And, and the amazing thing about the Gospel of John is its message, which is that Jesus is not just a man, he is God. What do we do with that? So last week on Resurrection Sunday, we looked at the beginning of John chapter 11, and we saw that uh, Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And he raised up his dead friend, Lazarus, from the dead, and it was this amazing thing that was outside of all human experience. And that caused people to respond, to react. And, uh, and some of those reactions were positive and some of them were very negative. One of the things that we, we got to hear about was how Jesus knows our suffering, how he hasn't forgotten us, and that he has come to do something about it. And so this spectacular event is drawing crowds to Jesus, but for that very fact, it's also leading the leaders, the, the religious leaders, um, to react against him and to oppose him. And so all of this is going to come to a head in chapter 12 as Jesus enters Jerusalem and it's going to lead to his arrest, to his crucifixion death, and then to another amazing miracle that he raises to life again and proves his power over our sin, over death, and over hell. But our passage today is this transition point in between what's happened with Lazarus and Jesus coming into his own um, at, the, uh, um, at the, the triumphal entry. And so uh, in this transition, we're seeing the setup for the showdown. All of that's going to come from this point on is how Jesus is going to be declared to be the Messiah, how he's going to set up a new covenant, and how he is going to uh, face uh, the judgment of the people. And so we're going to see in this passage, though, and the thing that makes this passage important is we get to see people's expectations, what they bring to the table when they encounter Jesus and the amazing things that he does. And those expectations um, sometimes lead to really not good reactions. And just as a little illustration, I've got a friend um, who works as a, an assistant manager for a gas station. And one of the things I didn't realize about the gas station is that a lot of their profit actually does not come from the gas that gets pumped at the pump there. Instead, it's by all the things they sell inside the store. And so they've got um, this, this particular gas station chain has a hot foods area. And so a lot of their margin comes from the hot foods that they sell. And this assistant manager, he has to oversee how all these things uh, come into play together, um, keep everything metriced and balanced, and, and keep the perspective, the main thing, the main thing, right? Well, he was telling me a story the other day about how there was a person who was working in the hot food area behind the scenes who had kind of made this her personal uh, kingdom. This hot foods area was going to be hers. And 
it was getting to the point where she was creating such a problem that people were quitting. And even she was trying to kind of throw some people under the bus and had gotten people fired. All because she wanted to do things her way and to run this kingdom behind the scenes. And so she had gotten her perspectives mixed up. And my friend is now having to kind of step into that situation and, and uh, set things right. And so there's, there's a conflict that's going on there. And the trouble is that, that she sees this whole store as working to serve her kingdom rather than seeing her area as working toward part of the larger whole for the good of the entire store and the chain. Let's, let's take a look here at our passage today, which is 11, um, John 11, 45 through 57, and see how that connects. Therefore... When we see that word, therefore, we have to ask, what is it there for? Thank you. Yes, You've, you must have used that before. That's awesome. So, um, <laughs> so what that therefore is talking about is all that's preceded before with the raising of Lazarus at this, at this amazing event. So, therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary had seen what Jesus did and believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. There is this man performing these signs. And if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them, named Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this on his own, but as high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for that nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day, they plotted to take his life. Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness to a village called Ephraim, there, where he stayed with his disciples. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for their ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus um, was should report it so that they might arrest him. So I, uh, I fancy myself as a bit of a student of people's personalities and their responses to things. And so I, I've kind of got a radar for how people respond to things and what might be going on that's led to that, that response. Um, and, and what I've noticed is there are things that are kind of hardwired in people, so we might call that their, their underlying personality or kind of the nature thing. 
Uh, and then there are those things that we've been conditioned by. We might call that nurture, but it's bigger than that. Often it's um, not just how we were brought up, but also the experiences that we have. And uh, also to add on top of that, there's often things like group dynamics that come into play. And so we might be one way when we're alone, we might respond to, to uh, an event or to some stimulus one way when we're alone, but then we respond differently when we're in either a smaller group or a larger group. And those group dynamics get very interesting too because uh, you always get these, these different responses from different groups of people within that. And so you, you might have um, kind of the early adopters who are on board immediately, the wait and see types, the follow after the crowd types, the open challengers, and the quiet, I'll never do it dissenters. I'm pretty sure that these are all the technical terms, right? <laughs> but our conditioning and our developed expectations from life um, can make our responses look different when an event or, or um, a stimulus comes to us. I might be an early adopter in one context and a challenger in another, depending on outside factors or what's going on inside of me that day. So between last week's passage and this week's, we see many of these responses come into play. So at uh, the, the funeral in Bethany, there were those who were quick to believe Jesus' words about what he was going to do, what was going to happen with Lazarus. There were those who openly challenged and mocked him. And now we read that many who saw the miracle that he performed believed in him. But there were also those who quietly slipped away and they went to the religious leaders of the nation. And what we see from this context is that they're not just going to share information. Hey, did you see what Jesus did? Instead, they're going in opposition to Jesus and they're seeking out a, they're recruiting the backing of the national leaders against him. We know that Jesus had friends and followers among the Sanhedrin, like Nicodemus or Joseph of Arimathea. And so there's a report that comes back from the meeting of the Sanhedrin, and we get to see some of the motivations and some of the expectations that are on display there, what they're bringing to the table in their response to Jesus. So first, in verse 47, we see this phrase, what are we accomplishing? Now, the Greek word is the same one as what we would use for to do or to make. So what are we doing? What are we making? What, what are we accomplishing? And the purpose isn't to say, um, you know, what are we doing about Jesus? Instead, many scholars are saying that this is a matter of comparison, what are we able to, uh, to accomplish in comparison to what Jesus is accomplishing? So we see what Jesus is doing. We even see that he has raised Lazarus from the dead, and we're not able to do the same thing. And so there is something going on in their hearts here where they're seeing a differentiation between themselves and Jesus. Sort of like how John had interacted with Jesus, where uh, John the Baptist, where he said, um, I must 
diminish. I must grow less. He must become greater. But unlike John the Baptist, who is in support of what God is doing in Jesus Christ, the Sanhedrin are against him. In short, they're jealous of him. A second phrase also stands out. Here is this man performing many signs. And the word signs is particularly important. So in, in a Greek lexicon, Laonida, uh, it describes this word as an event which is regarded as having some special meaning. Something which points to a reality with an even greater significance. So, what we're seeing is one thing that is pointing to something even greater, a sign. And they see the uh, undeniable signs of what Jesus is doing. He has raised Lazarus from the dead publicly. There's no denying what Jesus has done. And he's had this, this history that we've been seeing in the Gospel of John of how he's healed people uh, and now how he's raised someone from the dead. This cannot be denied. And yet, they don't believe. This is, they use the word signs. They're recognizing, they're acknowledging that something is greater here. Something greater that, that, that God is doing. And they recognize that everyone will believe in him. And yet they don't believe themselves. So there's this juxtaposition between this man and performing many signs. Signs of what? What do these signs point to? Well, that Jesus is Messiah and God. They admit that others see the signs. They see that others believe, but they can't do it themselves. And that is a tragic irony. These are the very ones who've been called and positioned to heal God's people. And yet they're incredulous about the healings. They're supposed to point people to God, but when God shows up, they don't recognize him. There's a danger that is being displayed here that we need to take into account. When you can see something with your eyes, you can see that it's right there, and yet you deny it. That is a dangerous place to be. And that can happen to us, too. We need to be so careful that we don't allow our expectations of these, these things in our past, whatever it might be, to cloud what God is doing that we can see. What they should be doing is recognizing that they are not the experts with all the answers, but they're supposed to lead the people in being open-handed coming to God in need. They're to be the first sheep, and yet they don't. They reject him. You know, it stands in, uh, 
in, in contrast to what happens in Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, this is a really powerful chapter, and Isaiah has a vision of God seated on his throne in the temple, and his glory fills the temple. And Isaiah is undone before God. He just recognizes how sinful he truly is. He says, woe to me, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I come from a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the glory of the Lord. And he humbles himself, and God cleanses him from his unrighteousness. And then God says, I have a message for the leaders of Israel. Who will go for me? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. And this is what God says about the leaders in Israel. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears, understanding with their hearts, and turn and be healed. What a tragic state of being. That because of the hardness of these leaders' hearts, God is saying, I'm handing you over. I'm turning on you for a time. And the position of leadership leads to nowhere. Religious leaders, even pastors, can become functionally atheistic. They can wind up actually opposing God while thinking they're serving God. I was reading recently a, a 2022 study by George Barna through Arizona Christian University. And it showed that out of a random sampling of 1,000 pastors, only 39% held a consistently biblical worldview. So the, the, the things of the gospel, who Jesus is, what he came to do, and then the impact for our lives and living into that is what we're talking about. Now, I don't know who these thousand pastors were or where they sampled that from, but uh, what Barna says is this is an eye-opener. This should serve as a warning sign. So these are the leaders of congregations. The reality is the signs that Jesus has performed are meant to draw us to him in faith. It's meant to open up our eyes, not to close them, to bring us into him and not drive us away. And so John uh, talks about the purpose of his gospel, why he wrote it in John 20. And he says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. God's signs are meant to draw us in, to open our eyes, to draw us to himself rather than to cause us to oppose him. It's the things that we bring, the expectations that we bring to the table that create the barrier. Finally, the Sanhedrin members reveal their real motivator in verse 48. That is fear. Fear that the Romans will come and take away what we see here, both our temple and our nation. And it's interesting to me, um, so this is just my little 
nerdy Greek moment, but uh, um, in the NIV, it, it translates this word into our temple. The Greek normally uses the word hieron, uh, which means a holy place, or naos, which means a house for God, for the temple. And here, it doesn't. It uses the word tapas, which is usually translated as place. So the, our place. And several commentaries make the point that the place to which the Sanhedrin were referring is not the temple at all. Instead, it's the place that they're enjoying as leaders of the people. It's not a, a euphemism for the temple. This place means my own position. And so they're worried about their position of power over the people, their own authority. And then it says, our nation. Wait, who, whose nation? Isn't that God's nation? Instead, they're focused on their position over the people. And because of that, it's blinded them to who Jesus is. They can't see who he is. And so even though they see signs, they see that other people are believing. They don't say, he is the Lord. They don't see, say, my Lord and my God. No, they say, this man. There's something wrong there. And it gets worse. One of them named Caiaphas, who was high priest in that year, spoke up. Now, from all the evidence that we have, both biblically and extra-biblically, Caiaphas was this consummate politician. His, his sole desire was about his position. And so uh, the priestly role, we need to remember, is one that was supposed to intercede for people, to offer sacrifices for human sin, and to point people toward worship of God. But Caiaphas was about power. The Jewish historian Josephus, who was himself a Pharisee, doesn't have good things to say about Caiaphas or his family. So he says that uh, Annas, uh, Caiaphas's father-in-law, had been high priest for many years, and um, he was removed in A.D. 15 for corruption uh, and political scheming. So the Romans, the pagan Romans, thought this dude was a dangerous guy because he was too political. The Romans thought that. That's not a good sign. We're going to find out in John 18 that Jesus, after he was arrested, was taken to Annas' house, where he is tortured and interrogated through the night. Annas kept control, even after he was removed from power, through other people. And so we find out that he had five sons who succeeded him as high priest in rapid succession. And Caiaphas, his son-in-law, is now the high priest. And he served from AD 18 through 36. But again, by all accounts, this man loved his position more than he loved God. Even so, we can see that God can still use sinful people to accomplish his purposes. God used Caiaphas in his role to speak better than he himself could have known. In his su suggestion 
that Jesus should die on behalf of all the people, which is meant for political expediency, Caiaphas is unwittingly prophesying about what is going to happen to Jesus and what it's going to accomplish in bringing lost people together in faith. So this prophecy and the actions of the Sanhedrin square with both human sinful desires and expectations, but also Israel's history. So we see examples of this happening over and over again in Israel's history. So in uh, Judges chapter 15, we see that the people of Judah would rather give up their hero and judge Samson than face the wrath of the Philistines. They bind him and hand him over. In 2 Samuel chapter 20, we see that there's this town of Israelites who uh, give up their family member, Sheba, who has been hunted by the king in order to avoid having to defend their city. And they toss his head over the wall to the general. We see here that it's expedient and it's convenient for one to die on behalf of the rest. There's a really sad math to it. They'll do this even if doing so dishonors God and his command to judge justly. They're committing injustice when they are supposed to be the people who do justice for the nation. And we can see those things happen in our, lives, our own lives. I see things like the hot food kingdom at the gas station. The reality is oftentimes when we get into this place where we're opposing God's will, we have focused not too high, but actually too low. We fixated on the things that we can control rather than seeing the part that God is playing through our lives in his larger plan. And so it's ironic that because of their sin, Israel's religious leaders, those who were to provide justice, who'd been hoping for a Messiah to come and remove the Romans, are now actually capitulating with the Romans to crucify this very Messiah. Everything has flip-flopped. Because of their own focus on the things that they want to control. But this was God's will. God is superintending this for something better. Isaiah 53 tells us that it was God's will to crush him and to make his life a ransom for many. We're told in Scripture that God showed his love for us in this, that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God used these wrong people in the right roles to do the better thing than they knew they were doing, even as they were trying to do wrong. Let's see if we can figure that all out. What they intended for evil, God superintended for good and for the salvation of many people. And Jesus was not a hapless victim. He was a willing sacrifice. He's the good priest, the good shepherd who lays down his own life for his sheep. Remember his words from John chapter 10 that we covered a few weeks back. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. 
I have the authority to lay it down and the authority to take it back up again. And Jesus, with, God, with the goals and the authority of God in the flesh, doesn't do what everybody expects of him. And that's an important thing to see here. People are expecting that after this sign done in Bethany, which is only a couple miles outside of Jerusalem at that point, um, that he's going to go into Jerusalem, he's going to declare himself this messianic rebel king, and he is going to raise an army and march against Rome. But he doesn't do that. Instead, we're told that he leaves Judea and he goes up to Ephraim in Samaria. Now, Samaria, it's where the Samaritans live. That means no Jews. So he goes out to Samaria near the wilderness, away from the people, away from the religious leaders. And he does this to show something really amazing to us. So we're, what we're going to see is Jesus' understanding of himself and his role, but also his response to people's expectations. So first, he takes this very Davidic uh, approach to dealing with a leader's desire to kill him. So he heads to the wilderness, and this is the same area David went when he was fleeing from King Saul. And it's also the same area where Jesus had gone when he was tempted and tried by Satan. And he's taking on these, uh, these themes from Israel's history and also from David's uh, kingly uh, history. And he's embodying that. So he's embodying this deep uh, theological theme. Second, Jesus is not going to play into the expectations of the people or the religious leaders. So in, in verse 56, we see that the people are expecting Jesus to arrive and declare himself, and they're looking for an excuse to crown him as king. The religious leaders are expecting the same exact thing, but they want an excuse to kill him. But Jesus doesn't show up yet. Not yet. He's going to come in his own time, on his own terms, and that is the third thing, is that Jesus, the God-man, doesn't do things like humans. He doesn't respond the same way we would, given the same situation. In Isaiah 55, we're told, My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And we've seen throughout this sermon series over time that as people bring their expectations to Jesus and as they, they challenge him and as they ask him questions and all these things, he often doesn't respond directly to what they're saying. He comes around a different way. And he blows up their expectations. And he draws their vision to something far greater. And that is what he's going to do here. He is going to enter into Jerusalem, but rather than raise up an army, he is going to come as a sacrifice. He's going to allow the people and the leaders to have their way with him. And rather than respond in the way that they would, they would do it, he's going to absorb that into himself as this sacrificial lamb on behalf of the people. His self-sacrifice is going to bring a deeper salvation than a military one would. It will set things right through an authority that is far higher than the national politics that these people are focused on. 
Jesus is going to do things a different way. So what does that mean for us? So we've spent all this time talking about the things behind the scenes and people's expectations. What does it mean for our hearts? I think it's easy for us to see that there are, there are three responses that people have to, to Jesus. Either we try to co-opt Jesus and make him into what we would want him to be. Our, our faith is conditional there. Or we oppose him entirely. We don't see him as Lord. We ignore him. Or we submit because he's Lord. Sometimes we can be like the people who are so focused on Jesus, preserving them through their human means, their human desires. Jesus, just fix it for me. Anybody ever feel that way? Just... Jesus, just fix it. I think there's even a song, Jesus, take the wheel. You know, <laughs> like, just, just fix the situation. I, I struggle with that sometimes. It's just, sometimes things feel overwhelming to me, and it's just, Lord, I just want you to fix this. Just, I don't want big changes in my life. I don't want all these other things. Just fix it. Rather than focusing on Jesus as Lord and what he wants to accomplish and walking humbly with my God. The reality is we need to raise our view above our experience through the eyes of faith. We could also come to Jesus like those religious leaders who can see the fruit of the Spirit at work. We can see that God is doing something and yet ignore who God is and reject it out of hand. I've got a, a friend um, that, that I've known a long time, and, and this is where he's at. We've talked about the gospel for years, and, uh, uh, but he works in an industry where he says, you know, um, to get ahead in this industry, you need to be a good liar. And honestly, um, people respect you more for telling a good lie, even if they know it's a lie, even if it's obvious, if you've done it skillfully, they'll respect you more than if you told them the truth. They'll pony up the money because you lied to them. What a weird way of living. But because of that, he says, I have so much respect for you. I have so much respect for Christians for living honestly and for, for submitting to the Lord and doing things this other way. But I can't do that myself. I won't go there. I have too much to lose. And he says that. And it breaks my heart. If anybody is living in that kind of environment, in, a, in an industry where that is the way things are, uh, I just want to encourage you. That we've got this great new library. And here are a couple of books um, that are about... How do you build a theology of business? How do you live into godly things within a business and a culture that doesn't? And so i just like to recommend those to you. Go ahead and can check them out of the library. We just need to remember that Jesus is above our little kingdoms. That his throne is so much greater than our own. Can we let him be God? 
so I would ask us just this week to examine our own hearts based on this transitional passage. Ask ourselves, what are the expectations that we're bringing to the table when we're dealing with what the gospel says about Jesus? I would hope that we would only bring one expectation, and that is that Jesus is God. That he should be Lord over our lives. And that we need to lay the other things down. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for your word. We are grateful for what you've told us. We are grateful for seeing all these things in Israel's history. But we're especially grateful for what you have done for us in Jesus Christ and that he is above all things, that his throne is greater than our thrones. And sometimes, Lord, it is so easy for us to get focused in on the minutia, on the small things, on the things that we can try to control. Lord, forgive us for that and help us to see something greater. Help us to see that, that Jesus is God and that he should have the place of Lord over our lives, and that we should submit to him. So Lord, do that in our hearts. Help us to submit. Help us to follow. Help us not to hold on to these other expectations, so that you would be glorified, and that we would be able to have that close, humble walk with our God. In Jesus' name, amen.